I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, dear listener, whoever you are and wherever you are, welcome to episode number eight. I'm Lauren Wood, your host here on The Pursuit Pod, where I chat to artists abroad about the pursuit of their creative careers. On this week's show, I had the very easy pleasure of meeting and chatting with someone who has followed a somewhat similar path as myself. And, well, I say easy, folks, because... Well, quite simply, I, I just didn't have to work out any time difference this week to chat with my guest today, Mr. Ben Chambers. Ben, like me, hails from the other side of the world, originally from New Zealand, but studied at the Conservatorium of Music in Brisbane and has trudged the well-worn path over here to London where he now lives and works as an artist. It's not the first we've heard of Ben's name here on the show. He was mentioned by two of my previous guests earlier in the season, Chris Fung and Matthew Seymour, as he intertwined with both of their stories. And today, he's here to tell us about his journey of navigating auditions, agents, touring work, and the ever-important money job, as we sometimes call it. In other words, the job on the side of your performance career that helps you to maintain some semblance of stability between gigs. It's been a great source of comfort for me, not just throughout this show, but in my life in general over here in the UK to connect with artists who have made the same journey from Brisbane to London as I have. And although we've heard a couple of these stories already, and no doubt there'll be plenty more to come, I still find it really interesting to hear about how everybody's experience is different And it's full of hurdles and triumphs that are completely unique to each individual. And because of that, there's always something to learn from everyone's perspective on their experience. Throughout my time with Ben, I came to realise that he is an incredibly mindful and reflective young person. And the roller coaster of emotions that he has experienced since moving over here in his early 20s is definitely shaping him up to be a formidable artist. So, without further ado, let's get to it. Hey, hello, Ben. Welcome to the podcast. Hello. How are you doing? Oh, I'm so good, love. It's really nice to have you on here. I uh, I feel like this interview was inevitable with you, Ben, since you've come up in a number of my conversations in previous episodes. It was uh, it was Chris Fung who nominated you as someone I should track down for an interview. So I'm proud to acknowledge that you are officially my first nominated guest to appear on the show. He brought me up because I heard him mention me and I thought it was a a fantastic chat with Chris and and it was really inspiring and sort of made me think that there might be something I would have to say that might 
help someone, but I didn't catch the bit where I was nominated. Well, to be honest, Ben, I think he nominated about 12 people towards the end of his chat. I think it just, uh, it shows a lot about Chris Fung, the fact that I came on for an hour to talk to him about his career and the wonderful things he is doing. And he proceeded to talk about everybody else that he loves and looks up to and... The battle Humility cow. won. The battle yeah, cow yeah, of course. But how, how are you today? How are you doing? I'm doing really good in defiance of everything that's going on at the moment and has been going on in particular, I guess, for the last 12 months and what that's meant for me at face value. I think I'm really happy with how I am at the moment. I'm doing really good. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm really good. And I mean, I've enjoyed how easy it's been to arrange this conversation with you because you're, of course, on the same side of the world as I am over here in London, dealing with that whole world. Uh, There's no time difference to take into account, which is nice. But Mm. you have been uh, you've been over here for a number of years now. Was it uh, 2015 or 2014 when you made the big move over to London? 2014, March 27th of 2014. Not that I'm counting. (laughs) <laughs> that, that date is burnt into your brain. <laughs> yeah, scary times. <laughs> and I, I mean, not that you are a stranger to moving about. You mentioned to me before the show how you've moved around quite a lot when you were younger. Did that mm. upbringing make it any easier for you to consider uprooting your life in Australia to move to the UK? Or what was it that made you decide to venture abroad? Well, I think for me, it was a conversation that I had after Showcase when we toured around with the the Showcase after what during third year. And off the back of that, I was lucky enough to receive a, a bunch of offers from agencies around Australia. And I took one meeting with Ian White. And I sort of during that conversation with him, I said, like, I, I, have always dreamed of sort of doing the West End thing. I have my heritage is British, so I can get the passport. And his reaction to that was sort of, oh, no, oh, oh no, you, you can't you can't do that. And if there's anything that I know about myself, it's I prosper the most when I'm told I can't do something. Um, <laughs> so that was a huge that was a huge part of it, I think, was um, was that sort of conversation. And and I think Chris spoke on this as well, just about the lack of work that was going on in Australia at that time. And I think as, as far as I can see, it's come on leaps and bounds since then. But I still felt as though I would rather be functioning. And again, like Chris said, like I'd rather be functioning and being be being told no, where I'm mixing it with, in my opinion, the pedigree of what's going on over here and that's not to take away from performances in Australia because a lot of the theatre that I've seen in Australia is in my opinion again of a higher calibre than I've seen over here in a lot of instances but it's just volume of work volume of opportunity and I could sense that it was something that was changing and has changed in Australia but I was very aware that you only get one shot at this thing called life and I didn't want to feel like I was waiting around for that shift to happen. Um, yeah. So I just did it. And I think I think the the quote from Chris's chat that stuck in my head was, if I'm going to be rejected, let me be rejected by the best. 100%. Love it. And as you say, you know, it's not that there's a lack of quality in Australian theatre. Mm. There's just a lack of it in general. So the UK does become this stage that attracts a lot of big names and big talent and big opportunities for those that are 
have developed the grit and are willing to stick it out and really Definitely. throw themselves into the deep end. So, I mean, yeah, we glossed over it there quickly, but you went to the con as I did in Queensland and, of course, any Australian agent. There's a, such a pressure on graduating students in Australia to land that agent, mm. regardless of, of whether they're considering moving abroad or not. It's understandable why Ian White Management wanted to <laughs> perhaps steer you away from travelling abroad when that was not going to serve them at all. For so. sure, for sure. I think that's an, an important thing to sort of remember in the in the scheme of it. Because I like, and Chris touched on this again. Again, the the idea that like I, I knew so there were so many people in my year that I thought were just dripping with talent and maybe didn't get the offers of representation that I felt that they deserved and yeah I think there's something there to sort of connect with as far as like that value and people valuing what you have there's such a huge part of that that you have no control over and it's just about capitalizing on the things that you do have control over and backing yourself um, and understanding what the things that you want for yourself and like applying, yeah, applying and yourself choosing to that. your own path. Similarly to the pressure that school kids feel graduating grade twelve in Oz and being pushed straight into a university degree and needing to decide what they want straight away. That's that same pressure that's placed on graduates finding an agent. I think, and it takes a bit of balls Definitely. to decide you're going to go against the grain and pursue a different path, which is what you did because you moved over to the UK fairly soon after graduating. Did you not? Yeah. So. I had the showcase and the meeting with Ian White and then I went to Mr. Paul Savey's office and I said, hey, Paul, can you help me out? And he said, yep, I can help you out. Do X, Y, Z, X, Y, Z being make a show reel, make yourself look good, make yourself sound nice. So I pulled upon my resources to get that done. And he said he had some people who owed him some favors. And yeah, I was lucky enough to be signed with Michael Garrett at Global Artists over here, and I was tied in with a lady called Millie Summer, who was um, assistant to Michael. And yeah, so I was very, like, very, very lucky to have representation in London with an established and well-regarded agency months before even arriving, which was um, like in- absolutely incredible. Yeah, it says something about the benefit of preparing yourself as much as you can before leaving the country. I I think anyone who jumps on the plane without thought of where their first job's going to be or which agents they're going to approach or any sort of idea of how to tackle the industry over here are really just setting themselves Mm. up on the back foot. So what an amazing opportunity for you to have that agent of all things lined up before you even got into the country. But still, you moved over here by yourself. Did you not? Was that the case? Mm. That's that's a huge journey. Yeah, it was and and I'd never I'd never been I'd never traveled outside of Australasia. So that was very daunting, but I was very lucky to have fr- like very close friends, my best friend Doug Colling who was over here already. So I I had that kind of support there, a very very close friend. But other than that, and of course having the representation from the agency was a big part of that as well as as giving me this sort of sense of like security I guess but taking all of that away it was still a huge like geographical move you you can't get any further away really than because I was in New Zealand at the time I I went home in between finishing studying and coming to London so 
there's a a pretty big it's it's pretty much the opposite side of the world yeah <laughs> so yeah it was it was a big it was a big change it was especially yeah sure. uh, you must have been about 22 then if my maths is correct I think I was 21 turning 22 yeah Crazy. yeah very brave so let's talk about then you getting off the plane and those early days what were some of your first impressions of London um that all of the things were weird and the train went to Cockfosters and I laughed. <laughs> that was my very first impression of London. Other than flying in and just seeing the city and sort of having a bit of a moment of being like, holy shit, this is a big city. Yeah. And then, and then I, again, I was very lucky. I had a place to stay and sort of get myself settled. But yeah, it was just... That was just with those friends you mentioned, was it? No. So again, Paul Saby, so as you probably know, Paul Saby had quite a bit to do, I say very uh, generally, with the Mountview course in London. Yes. And so there was a huge pool of graduates from that course. And I was lucky enough to be put in contact with Michael Melmo. And he was very generous and offered me a place to stay for a couple of months. And that was really, really generous. And I uh, then I found my own place and moved down to southwest London and Tooting Broadway. And I've been here in this flat ever since. So I like it down here. But yeah, it was crazy. It was daunting. It was very like it was huge. It was it, it was nothing like I could have prepared for. It was just I had an idea of what I thought it was going to be, and it was bigger than that. And I think that there's something to be said as far as that goes with the industry in itself is that there's no way that you can truly emulate what it is to be in the industry without actually being in it and doing it. And I guess there's a parallel between like how I felt about that and how I felt about London. Yeah. yeah. So it was, yeah, it was, it was very scary, very overwhelming, but I was well aware and very grateful of the, the foundation that I had prior to coming here. Cause that was all set in stone before I even got onto the plane. So pretty easy transition in that sense of it. Yeah. Nice. A little bit, a little bit of weight taken off your shoulders yeah. there at least. Yeah, for sure. So once getting yourself settled, finding yourself in that a shared living situation. How were you approaching your finances in the early days? Did you need to get a job or was the agent getting you auditions fairly quickly? How did that work? So I was working in between moving to London and finishing graduating. I was in New Zealand for a couple of months, like two or three months. And I did like a fundraiser sort of page and managed to raise some money doing that, doing like some concerts and doing some singing Smart. lessons and stuff like that. So that was really helpful. Um, and then on top of that, I was working in a coffee shop and a woman named Jan said to me, hey, you're moving to London. I know a guy who runs a coffee shop in Soho and you should reach out to him and see if he can help. And so I reached out to him and within two weeks of being in London, I was working in a beautiful coffee shop in London called Flat White. And I still work there. And they are amazing, amazing coffee, amazing people. And that was hugely beneficial. That was that was my financial sort of security that and the money that I'd saved over the two, three months in New Zealand to sort of be able to have a bit more freedom about being able to apply myself to any auditions that I did have, which again, like I, I had no idea what that was going to be like. I had no 
you know, I had, you know, obviously hopes and dreams of being like, oh my God, I'm going to be in the room like every other day. Holy smokes. Yeah. You know, like working in Soho, I'll just finish this coffee and pop to an audition. Don't mind me. I'm just down the road. Which I have (laughs) done and wouldn't recommend. Uh, Yeah. That is too much coffee and too much pressure results in very big failures. Um, Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Caffeine and anxiety don't necessarily go hand in hand. I've learned the hard way. cocktail. But it sounds like you found a place, a workplace that, I mean, you've been there for seven years now. So they've obviously become mm. almost a, a a family for you, it seems, to support someone Definitely. over such a long period who needs consideration for pursuing artistic endeavors on the side. That's that's a good employer, if you ask me. They're not they're not always so understanding. No, and I and I think I am very lucky. A na- uh, a lady named Laura Smith, who is the owner and manager of Flat White just amazing and really understanding and supportive and has been there for me in so many times where I've had doubts about what it is that I'm doing creatively and you know even bigger than that just in in life in general hugely flexible with me in pursuing the things that she knows to be important to me and I think also really accepting of other people in that same situation where there are a lot of people who are working there who it's their side hustle they're creative people who are trying to find a way to establish themselves and I'm just really really lucky to have that understanding and support and flexibility from that whole group of people really like it's not specific to the owner and manager it's it's other people who will pick up those shifts that you can't do because you have to go to that audition and it's you know it's uh, it's a two-way street. So it's a beautiful, beautiful community within that cafe. It's a approach that I wish more casual employers in Brisbane would take on board. I know of lots of friends who have had to sacrifice or even lose jobs over clashes with schedule, trying to pursue auditions and things back home. It's part of the culture here in London that I'm very, very grateful for. But, you know, that was not all that was going on for you. You, As you said, you'd connected with this agent at Global Artists and it Mm. seems that you started getting a little bit of work or at least some auditions and some projects off the ground pretty early on. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, so the first audition I had was for... Back to the Future, which at the time, I think it's about to open even this year, fingers crossed, but at the time was a workshop production and a man named David Grinrod was casting it and I had no idea. Big, who big name, that man. Big That's dog. a very important name in casting, David uh, Grinrod. Yeah, for sure. And I had no idea about who this man was and what he represented in the industry. And I went there and I had my song and I was prepared and I was ready. And I went in 20 minutes before and they were all on a lunch break and I went in to test the acoustics of the room. And I was like, right, okay, this is, I'm, I'm ready, I'm, I'm, I'm good. And then I got in there, gave my sheet music, all of my uh, audition prep classes from the con sort of kicked in. I had my cologne on, my nice shirt. I was like, I'm ready and yeah. um, was very polite. And then I started singing Open My Mouth and lo and behold, everyone was looking at their phones and I didn't exist. And I was like, all right, um, hello, I'm here. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and it didn't, I didn't get it. And it was a really big learning curve for me. And, and this is what I talk about when I say there's no way that you can really emulate what that means. Even if you have someone like, someone like Paul Sabi or, or someone of that ilk, 
trying to emulate that in a classroom, you sort of, uh, you know, sort of, you think, oh, well, that will never happen. But it does. And I think that that is a really important lesson to learn. But yeah, I mean, fast forward five years to the Sunset Boulevard tour that I was lucky enough to get. That was a David Grinrod casting thing as well. And I went in there with this energy of like, this time you will fucking notice me sort of thing. (laughs) And lo and behold, he took notice of me and I got that job. And I remember him him saying to me in the callback for that audition, he said, you've got a a British passport, don't you? And I said, yeah, yeah, I do. And he said, good boy. (laughs) And I was just like, oh, my goodness, the tables have turned. It's amazing. Um, So, yeah, perseverance, I guess. Lovely full and circle. Just not changing, not changing your game. Just committing to what you believe to be the right choices in those audition environments. I think. Yeah, yeah. And the level, the level of satisfaction you get out of landing that next job with the same casting director, who's I oh. don't know. It feels like it's who's shunned you the first time round. Let's let's jump to that then. So Sunset Boulevard's probably been your biggest commercial show over here would you yeah, say Yeah definitely I think it would either be that or the the job at the the Royal Op- Opera House mm. um but as far as like longevity goes and like the sort of the, the length of that tour and like what I got to experience as a result of getting that job was yeah, I would agree with what you're saying. It, the the thing that I liked about Sunset Boulevard the most was actually the story leading up to that audition. Rewind like four months prior to that audition, I was in a terrible place. I just finished doing an acapella show called Gobsmack, which is a completely different story. But as a result of that and a bunch of other things that were going on for me personally, I was just feeling really deflated And I made the decision to step away from global artists and the industry in itself. I actually sort of terminated my my connection with them after going home to New Zealand and spending a bit of time with family and sort of just like processing what I was feeling. And then I came back to London and I thought I was going to pursue my music, the music side of things and a completely different avenue of my creativity. And then I sort of had like a, a borderline like anxiety attack, my first anxiety attack that I'd ever had at work. And I sort of had this realization of like, holy smokes, what are you actually doing? If you're going to be here and pursue like music, you can do that anywhere. But you've come over here for a very specific reason to pursue musical theater. So do you want to give that a real crack? And so I called Millie Summer and I said, Millie, I've made a mistake and her response was just like well jesus ben um i'll see what i can do sort of thing and then she called me back about an hour later and said okay look you're going to go to this audition tomorrow and you're going to give it everything that you have and this was the first audition for sunset boulevard and i just went in there and i was like i got nothing to lose i got nothing to lose i just have to go in there and do what i know i'm capable of and i went in there and i did it and i got a call back i did the call back I was freaking out that there would be a dance call. There wasn't a dance call. The next call I got, I got the job. And I was just like, what? Wow. Like it made no sense. Like it was really, I I didn't understand what had happened. It's almost like the universe (laughs) pulling you back on track. Uh, Yeah. Whether you you were, that was what you were intending to do or not. I don't know. I still, I still don't really know the answer to the questions that are tied up in that, but it was just a really surreal experience. 
and it made me enjoy that job and the company the whole creative team behind that like Nikolai Foster and Curve the work that they had done are doing and will continue to do for the arts and especially the youth and disadvantaged youth is just absolutely incredible and I was very lucky to be a part of that and through that be able to see all of these other places in the UK, um, Ireland, and even Europe, we we toured all over the place with that show. And it was just such a, an amazing experience. And to walk into, I think the polarizing sort of like thing that I felt with Sunset was the moment I walked into the rehearsal room on the first day and we sat down and sung through the score. And... I realized how fine and arbitrary the line is between being the person who's banging on the audition door to being the person in the room. Like I, those, the, all of those people are extremely talented and I, I love all of them, but I know so many people who would be capable of doing the work that I did and those people were doing. And it's just accepting and understanding that there are so many things outside of your control that lead you to either getting that job or not getting that job. All you can do is do the work. Yeah. And that was, that was a really important thing to sort of learn, I guess. Yeah. 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 I'd love to talk more about Sunset just since we're on the topic for, for the moment. Mm. So you were part of the ensemble for that show and it was a national tour, which is a, a really prevalent thing over here in the UK. If you're, if you're not in a main stage show on the West End but you're in a national tour I think you're considered in that league of performers who are doing the real upper echelon Mm. of musical theatre work in this country but it involves a lot of traveling a lot of changing of venues yeah Uh, let's let's talk about your time in that cast and traveling about so I mean I guess I the, the the traveling part of it was something that I was kind of already had sort of experience with my moving <laughs> moving around prior to that um but the weekly touring thing was quite taxing in a way and again I think it was made easier by that company and my experience with that I mean I was working with you know Nikolai and like Rhea Jones, Danny Mac, Adam Pierce, Molly Lynch, these amazing amazing performers and the creative team as well. Names I am not good with and they slip my mind and there are people I won't mention, but it is not for lack of caring. It's right. Not yet, exactly. Was it that you were, were you in a, how often were you changing venues, sorry? As far as like the structure of a tour, how often are you, you know, packing up and shipping It was pretty much weekly touring, bar a few instances where we were there for, um, well, we were in Leicester for a month and then we were in Manchester for a couple of weeks. We were in Dublin for a couple of weeks, I think, Amsterdam for a couple of weeks. But for the most part, it was weekly touring. So it would be eight shows a week. Is it eight shows a week? Seven shows a week? Eight shows would be with the matinees, wouldn't it? Yeah, eight shows a week. And then Sunday was travel day. So it was relentless. Like, and you would bump into the new venue and you would, you you wouldn't really stop. Yeah. Which was, I mean, to be 100% honest with you, it never felt like work to me because I was so wrapped up in it and I just relished every single second of that tour. I only realized how exhausting it was after I'd finished it. But whilst I was doing it, I was very aware of how fleeting those moments are and how much you have to take advantage of them when they are in front of you. So it, it was tiring, but I loved it. Yeah. And it was the best experience I've had in that 
part of my creativity yeah. for sure. And by the sounds sure. of it, potentially a bit of a savior for you. If that hadn't have come about, what was your plan as far as being back in London in those moments where you sort of were going, fuck, I need to call my agent back. I need to, I need to fix this. I need to get myself back in the room. If you hadn't have done those things, what, what was your plan for yourself? Well, I mean, I'd come back over and it was, um, My sense of the the feeling that I had when I went back to New Zealand was that I was being, my creativity was being defined by someone else Mm -hmm. and that I felt that I was capable of expressing that creativity through many different mediums outside of musical theatre. So in answer to your question, I don't really know what I would have done had that not have happened. I, I don't I don't really know. I know that I was applying myself as best I could to the the music side of my life and looking at ways to sort of pursue that and then sort of like finding myself coming to the same sort of barriers that I was at experiencing in the musical theater industry, which was like quite confusing and a bit of a realization. But I don't know what I would have I don't I don't know what would have happened if I hadn't have had that moment and had the Sunset Boulevard audition and like had had that conversation with Millie and rekindled that flame. I don't I don't really know. It's a it's a scare it's a scary thought and I count my lucky stars that it panned out the way that it did, I suppose. I think it's quite a fearful thing that a lot of creatives and performers have to ponder regularly is is not knowing what the rest of their year is going to look like not knowing where they're going to be in two years time or even where that next paycheck is going to come from we really do go from contract to contract living kind of up in the air at the will of whatever goes our way so I mean that that can have an effect on people in in a multitude of different ways and you touched on the fact that you'd been going through a bit of a a tricky patch leading up to that. Mm. I'd like to just go back now because you mentioned your work with Gobsmacked, Mm. the acapella group that you joined forces with. So you connected with them fairly early on in your time in London, it seemed. Yeah, so that that was off the back of a relationship that I had with a lady named Leotine Hass, who is a singing teacher who you may, I, I know she's done some work with the con and like she's very close with Paul. And she, the, the director of Associated Studios, yes. I yes, believe, yes. Who, have, who have been, as you say, there is a relationship there with Paul and they've been extremely supportive of con students moving over to London, uh, looking for teaching work, mm. for example, or, or further coaching. So you had that connection with her or you, you'd um, yeah, so I, been I was getting, put in touch with her. Yeah, so Paul had put me on to her and I got in touch with her to get singing lessons. And then through that, she put me on to Nick Dudson, the chap who uh, produced that show. Um, and, and I was part of the workshop, the initial workshop for Gobsmacked. And again, like similar to the, the Royal Opera House gig, I never would have thought like I would be doing a show like that like an acapella show, like sure, it's singing and, and, and whatever. But like I was so tunnel visioned on musical theatre that I was just like kind of blind to, to everything else. Yeah. Well, actually, I've I've jumped about a bit. I'm sorry. You've mentioned this opera house gig a yeah. couple of times. So <laughs> let's let's go back to a slightly more structured timeline mm. now. So the opera house gig, let's talk about this. Okay. So this was like, I think probably my, within my first five auditions, And I got a call from Millie and she said, I've got an audition for you at the Royal Opera House doing 
Anna Nicole, which is a modern opera about the life of Anna Nicole Smith. And you are going to be auditioning for the understudy for Anna Nicole Smith's son. (laughs) And I'm going to send over the material now and you are going to this audition. And so I downloaded this score and it was a bunch of prescription medication tied up into a opera song. It is, it is, <laughs> it is quirky. It, it's um, it's the same librettist who did the Jerry Springer opera, I believe. I yeah, I think yeah. I, I think I think you're right. So with that. It, I think for for anyone who maybe doesn't know anything about the show, you can uh, if you know anything about the Jerry Springer opera, or can just imagine sort of the slightly left of center. It was a trip. Material that it's touching on. Definitely. Uh, and, and Anna Nicole, of course, just famous for being famous. I mean, how do you turn that into a show? Oh, you can. That's You can do it. But yeah, the, the audition for that was um, an interesting one because I was sent that score and I was like, holy smokes, how has this come to me? What is going on? I don't do opera. This is weird. And I looked at the material. I found it really, really, really difficult to learn that song. And I learned it. And about three or four weeks later, I was in Covent Garden at the Royal Opera House in the main rehearsal space with two other people who all were going for the same part. And we went around the piano and they sort of introduced us all. And they said, we're going to do a bit of a sing of it. And I turned around and put my music down because I'd learned it and turned around and everyone was standing there with their faces in the score. And I was kind of sat there and I was just like, all right, great. (laughs) Um, And then we did it in front of the director and I got the job there. And then they literally just said, "Okay, you two can leave, mate. You've got the job. And I was just like, wow. Okay, (laughs) thanks. (laughs) Like it was crazy. And so mum and dad got a, a, a 3 a.m. call. Oh, gosh. What, uh, what a rush that must have been for you, landing that first really, really big gig. And, I, I mean, it's not a hard thing to stand out in an audition by just working that little bit harder. Yeah. Outworking the people around you, learning your bloody lines, getting that script out of your hands. Because, like, how can you even – how can you perform properly yeah. with a piece of paper stuck in front of your face uh, it shows a little bit of tenacity and obviously made you stand out from the crowd in that situation exactly and and you never know what other people have got going on as well I think that's important to remember like there are people who you, you first of all you don't know what's going on in someone else's life and they might have you know six auditions that day and they need to have that and that's fair enough but that works in my favor when I'm the person who might not have that and all I can do again is just apply myself to what it is that I'm given and just go for it. So yeah, that's what I did. And it worked in my favor. And it landed. Nice. Nice. Amazing. So how was the run of that show? That was just at the Royal Opera House for its whole season. Yeah, it it was very short. I, I think the show ran for maybe four weeks and we rehearsed for about three weeks and I was cover. So I never got to go on. But again, like, I mean, what an education. Like I got to sit in the room with some incredible people and see a completely different thing as well. Like, I mean, you know, the way that and, you know, to to have a reference point of Anna Nicole working on Sunset Boulevard, the difference between how those two worlds work was really interesting and just like a real education to see like how how those people conduct themselves in those those environments and like just an amazing sort of an amazing experience like to have the first thing on my cv regardless as to whether or not i got to go on and do the show i got to put and will always have next to my name a, a gig at the royal opera house which is a very special 
thing for me. Yeah. So yeah, it was it was cool. It was really cool. Very cool. And something really different, as you say, to be a part of the world of opera was not something that you were headed towards. No. And all whilst this was going on, you had your job at the coffee shop and we just touched on it quickly just before, but you were also doing work with the a cappella group, Gobsmacked. Tell me about how, yeah, how you started mm. your work with them and the journey you've been on because you've been doing work with them for a number of years or, or, or did so for a number yeah. of years. Yeah, so they, I, I, as I said, like I was part of the workshop in that, of that, I think it was maybe 2015. So early days, oh, really early days when you first, yeah, like second yeah, year. Yeah, really, yeah, definitely, yeah, for sure. Like I think it, it was around that time. And then we did the Edinburgh Fringe Festival, um, which was great. And then we did, we went to Hong Kong with it. We did the South Bank Underbelly Festival and then we went back to the Fringe. And it was just like, it, it was a hell of a thing. It was like, a, it was an interesting thing in the sense that like I sort of look at the the balance between like, quote unquote muggle life and like performers life like this pendulum that swings where you're riding this huge high of being in a job and then it swings back to reality and the thing that was like challenging and I learned a lot from gobsmacked was it was these really short bursts of me feeling this like sense of fulfillment and success and then swinging back which was I think a huge reason as to why like I kind of with it going like on and off on and off on and off really led me to having a bit of a crash before I went back to New Zealand but it was an amazing experience and I got to work with some really amazing people on that again and was pushed outside of what I thought I was capable of and I mean you you glossed over it very quickly but uh, and you say back and forth with that group going back and forth back and forth because it was mostly gig based work um but uh, I mean you guys not only went to Edinburgh once but at least twice did you not and I I noticed that you were featured on like BBC morning radio for a couple of things like that's exciting it is exciting it is exciting and I I I don't know I I you can sit here and talk about those kind of things and I think there's value to those things to an extent like I and those experiences were amazing but I think that the lessons that I cherish more are the fundamental ones about what it represents for for me anyway personally like those those challenges are being pushed and pulled and stretched and really starting to ask yourself and look at the bigger questions as to why I'm doing this and why am I inclined creatively to express myself in this arena so yeah like I, I mean obviously like those things were incredible and I do gloss over them and it's not because I don't remember them it's just that I think there's only a certain amount of value in talking about them um yeah, that's kind of how I feel about that. Yeah. Fair enough. But over your time with Gobsmacked, you've, you've hinted at it a couple of times. You said you were reaching a point where you'd had enough or you were feeling like you needed to change things up. Was that because of the the nature of the work or anything to do with working with that group or just something got a more personal level? It was a personal thing for me, I think. I became really frustrated when we had a tour of Australia that was booked and it was solid enough and advertised enough where I'd felt comfortable sending out messages to friends and family in both Australia and New Zealand, which some of those messages meant that people booked flights and accommodation and said show was cancelled and didn't happen. And I was really upset by that and I just 
couldn't do it anymore. I, I just, I, I felt like I'd extracted, I felt like I'd extracted creatively everything that I could from that. And then it was more about like, honestly, it was more about like ego when it comes to that. When like, you know, I, I want to be able to go and do it in Australia and friends and family can see it and I get validation from them seeing it. It doesn't change what I'm actually doing creatively. It just becomes about me. And that it's a bit more personal. It's on your home turf and, and you've got, you don't want to lose face in front. You've got a reputation back there as well. Yeah, for sure. So I, I just kind of got to the point with it where I, I, I just kind of looked at it and I just said, look, it's been a hell of a ride. I've learned a lot, met some really lovely people, played some cool shows, had some cool travel and stuff and I'm very grateful, but I don't want to do it anymore. And it's nothing, you know, it's nothing against any of the people who, who were involved in it at all. Like amazing, amazing team. Again, I've been very lucky to work yeah. with like amazing people, um, through any work that I've but it it takes a lot of it takes a lot of strength to be able to acknowledge especially as a performer who's regularly fighting for opportunities um it takes takes a lot of courage to recognize when maybe something's not working for you anymore or that it's time to move on Mm. especially if you don't necessarily have a another big job or prominent job to move on to but I know you've been working a lot in the background with your own music and producing most recently your EP so can you tell us a little bit about what you do with your own music production uh I struggle to talk about it and I don't know why um it is (laughs) essentially lockdown happened and I was like oh I've got all this music equipment and um, I might as well do something with it. And so I made this EP called They Come in Threes and decided after about, you know, 10 plus years of sort of dabbling in music production and sound design and mixing and engineering and whatever else to actually do something with it and put out a little a project, not a little project. Yes, it's things. not little. Yes, yeah, exactly that. Um <laughs> yeah, I decided to put out- no such thing as a little project no. when it's coming from your own energy and 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 thoughts like that. I judged myself. I just called it little. It's it, it, it in in terms of its recognition and the numbers, it may be perceived to be little, but what it represented for me was something really huge and special, and has informed a lot of the last twelve months of my life, which has been amazing. Like to 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 rely less on outsourcing my creativity and to emulate and create that sense of fulfillment and satisfaction without the need of that platform of musical theater or representation or auditions or performance in that world to be able to derive the same sense of what that brings without it is man like that is the most valuable thing to me like to be able to do that is beautiful thing and I would encourage anyone to get, look at that and and try to find that I think make something of their own Definitely. I think especially especially when you have uprooted yourself and changed countries in such a huge way like you have to feel like you've found your feet at least to the point where you can make your own work again or express yourself in such a personal way I think it takes a little while when you're in a new country to tick all the boxes, to get the agent, to to start feeling like you're succeeding financially or career-wise enough to 
be able to take a breath and start focusing again on being creative because there's a huge difference between doing creative work as in like being in musicals and being on stage and performing and using our skills and those tools and then actually creating something of your own they're two very different beasts definitely and I think it's when you start attaching the idea of what is successful to things like recognition and maybe financial gain where things can get really confusing because obviously it's you you need to have financial stability in order to survive and function in the world period but when it becomes this your creativity gets lost and tied up in that i think it's the same it's the same principle of that like wanting versus needing like when you walk into a room and i can t- i can sense it in myself now when i walk into an audition room and i'm like ah oh, i needed that rather than I wanted to be there. I was excited about what I was doing and I was acting out of a place where it was win or lose. It's been a great Mm -hmm. experience. And that's like something that I try and take into all those auditions now is just doing the work and just being able to go in there and be like, hell, I'm so lucky. Like I get to stand in this room and have this person who I can hand a piece of music to and they can play pretty much flawlessly, hopefully. Um, (laughs) the case oh my goodness Um, have you had some bad experiences with uh audition pianists (laughs) as he shakes his head and looks downwards yeah a couple I think in my first ever audition while I was in drama school for the Lamers tour um in Australia I went in and I and and I did the material and they said have you got anything else and I took um run away with me and the pianist started playing it and I think I said something along the lines and was like Oh, uh, it, it it's um there's a key change there and it's in six four. <laughs> and they were just like, Whoa. And I was just like, Well, he's kind of playing it wrong. And I was and I was just like, This is kind of my time, man. Like I I'm not trying to boss you around or anything, but like I got a, I got a, a an allotment of time here where I can do yeah. something for myself and no disrespect to you, but you kind kinda of messing it up a little bit. <laughs> It just highlights the fact, uh, uh, the the point of how there are so many things out of your control, mm. especially in. And an I audition think being setting. able to be honest and like talk about those things, like I wasn't, ha- I my intention wasn't to have a go. I just want like I and I wasn't like wrong in what I was saying. I was just expressing it, and like I think ignorant, unexperienced me, like would probably not have done those things in auditions, like at a later stage. But like if I'm honest with myself, when people are looking for company members. Like if you do it, it's not what you say, it's like how you say it. And if you can communicate things and bring things to light that need addressing in a way that is like constructive and not seen as a threat, then I think that's the kind of person you want to be working with. You know, it's not like if you take things personally or take offense, it says like as much about you as it does the other person. It's just like we are here as performers and producers of creative output where our job is to create the best product we can with the tools that are available to us and whatever those tools are if you perceive them to be if you take it personal and get your ego involved and it gets in the way of making something better then who's losing like who's losing yeah like absolutely and I think as 
as professionals in this industry, it's just about being our best, most creative selves Mm. at all times, which doesn't mean necessarily, I'm not talking technique here. I'm talking about open-mindedness. I'm talking about communication skills. I'm talking about being able to read people and be empathetic in a room. And you develop those skills not only by going to audition after audition and after, you know, and, and staying on long contracts and building that thick skin, but also by building yourself into as well-rounded a person as you can be, which it sounds like you've remained focused on with with having your music, your projects with your music and now your EP in the background. I think that's an amazing personal project that will continue to shape you as an artist and give you new perspective on things, not to mention just put you out there in a whole new way to the rest of the world. Um, but also maintaining this relationship with your family at the coffee shop and yeah. and just harboring an interest in coffee like you know there's more than there's more to life than just performing Definitely. Uh, and and uh, I mean one of the beautiful things about living on this side of the world is that we we get to travel more easily for sure as well which I think can be one of the most informative experiences you can do as a human and as a performer to just see different parts of the world. And I know you've gotten to do, you know, a, a fair bit of traveling of while it. you're yeah, in here. Lots of it. And I couldn't agree more. I think to see, to, to be able to see the world and see the bits of the world that I've been lucky enough to see sometime on like through my own choice. And then other times just through the nature, well, if you boil it down through my own choice as well, but it's come as a byproduct of that choice. And it's been something that's been offered to me. But yeah, like I, the travel and like seeing the world is such an important thing. And I would love, I'm desperate to do more travel. And the fact that we can't do that at the moment sucks. But I also know that there's something to be said for how much more appreciation I know I will have for that travel when I'm able to do it again. But yeah, Absolutely. To, I, I was fascinated with history when I was at high school and to be able to, you know, do things like go to Poland and go to like the concentration camps and 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 see all of that stuff. Stuff is a bad word for it, Ben. This is really heavy, heavy material. I almost said stuff, Ben. <laughs> but, you know, it, it, it's just, it, it's like to engage with what happened before you and understand that you're part of that I think is just a really humbling sort of thing to understand. And especially when you relate it back to what it is that you're doing and the things that you freak out about in auditions or performance or anxieties about like your performance and creativity. And it's like something that's kind of like thrown around a lot in a bit of a cliche of like, Oh, you're not saving lives. And like, I would also argue that in a sense, like, but it it is kind of true. It's just like, there's an insignificance to what it is that you you're, you're doing. Like, it's an inter- yeah. it's an interesting conversation and the idea that like no one's special I think is like can kind of be taken the wrong way and I know personally that if I had have heard that 10 years ago I wouldn't have believed it and I wouldn't have even heard it but I think it is like an interesting thing to at least keep somewhere yeah. and sort of accept the fact Gareth Harris I'm jumping around Gareth Harris my acting teacher when I was at the con, if there's anything that he taught me, it was there is a certain amount of lessons that are to be learned in life. And it's just the way in which you learn those lessons. And I might say something to you that will make no sense. And at some point in time, someone might say it and you'll be like, that's what he meant. I get it. And I think it's just important to like 
have those questions for yourself, like somewhere boxed up to like look at at some stage. And to keep looking at and to revisit as you grow and you have new experiences to draw upon and new perspectives to to view through. Mm. I think those sort of big life-affirming questions are important to keep touching base with. And travelling is a fabulous way of reminding yourself that there are things outside of your world that are so much bigger and so much more important than you. And goodness knows it helps you to stop focusing on the relentless torrent of auditions or lack thereof or anything to do with anything. If you ever want auditions, go on holiday. That's when they fucking happen. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> oh, I'm going to go on holiday for two weeks, first day of holiday. Oh, I've got you an audition. Of course you do. You can't go anywhere. <laughs> like, it's, yeah. It's, or, it's, or, you know, cut to you setting up a self-tape in your hotel room I, and like, bugging yeah, all the other tapes. Changed, changed completely now, hasn't it? It's, it's yeah, that's, yeah, it is a, a different beast now. Like, even before COVID, all of that impersonal sort of like way in my opinion sort of um the self-taping thing and, and all of that is a is a different conversation but um yeah yeah there's pros and cons aren't there I used to always I, I used to always really hate self-tapes actually mm. but I'm slowly growing to love them and and realize that they I don't know if you can uh, find a joy in them uh, they really actually make your life quite a lot easier and goodness knows you don't have to go and stand in front of that panel with their heads all down looking at their but phone. See, I mean that's the thing I get off on that like I, I I, you know it's the same it's the Ian White complex of like being told you can't do something and it's like this defiant stubborn Ben being like oh you will listen I have a story to tell so listen up gather around children <laughs> like sort of feeling um which I feed off yeah. a lot which is maybe why I don't like the the self-tape thing this, as as much like I, I love that adrenaline of going into a room and sharing something like I think that's really beautiful I love that and since you have been you know living on this side of the world for a good chunk now seeing lots of different countries doing a few really cool jobs doing a few of your own little projects in the background I do you have any final little pearls of wisdom or advice that you can leave for listeners wanting to do similar things or perhaps just even starting off from little old Brisbane or New Zealand like you did? I would say that, and we touched about on this a little bit earlier, I think the thing that I feel more than anything about this whole idea of creativity and creative expression is to not let anyone or anything or like anyone but yourself define what your idea of your creativity is and what you're creatively capable of and be really careful when you make a decision to box yourself in as to how you express that creativity and to understand that your creative potential is probably more than you think it is especially when you're tying it into the idea that a piece of paper or pressures from, you know, educational institutions will hold you to within a certain box. Yeah, not letting not letting your degree define you, I think is the way that you've worded it really yeah. well. Yeah, that that's kind of how I feel. I I think you just owe it to yourself to 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 find ways of expressing your creativity and and, and really cherish it and hold on to it and be open-minded about avenues and in, in, in how you express it. 
if I've taken anything from our chat today, the biggest takeaway I've I've gained is just to get back on the horse when things get tough. And even if you need a time away from the industry to, uh, you know, check in with yourself, check in with family, maybe take a little break, that's fine. Mm-hmm. But if you still have that, that simmering urge within you that is what pushes you towards doing creative work, then it's all right to take a break sometimes. Definitely. And and to come back refocused, refreshed, and, and the ready to try again. people who care about you and have your best interests at heart will understand and they will get it. I was lucky. Yeah. I was so lucky to have Millie Summer in my corner. Like, she gave a shit. And that is important to be aware of those people and hold those yeah. people close. That's important. I think. Uh, well, thank you to her. And Ben, I can't wait to see where you go next once COVID allows us to get <laughs> out of our bedrooms. But in the meantime, do you have anything that you want to promote or spruik to our listeners uh, while we still got yeah. you Yeah. I mean, Chris touched on this a little bit. Uh, I made a show reel for him in an email that he sent me. He said it was an integral part of him getting his representation. And I do it pretty well. Um, so if you are wanting to make a vocal reel, especially in this arena where things are becoming more and more digitized and less face to face, it is important, I think, to have a good show reel and some nice clips of you doing stuff. And if you wanted me to help you with it, please just drop me a message and we can talk about it. Just on Facebook, is that where you're happy for people to to message you through? What's your best Facebook avenue? Facebook or Instagram, I guess. I mean, it yeah. doesn't really make a, make a difference to me, really. Uh, like, yeah, if you search Benjamin Chambers or Ben Chambers, you'll probably find my face somewhere and you can click on it and then you can get in touch with me and I will talk to you. Excellent. And we get yeah. you some work. That'd be lovely. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, do you also, do you have anyone you'd like to nominate to see interviewed on the podcast? I do and this is a bit of a weird one um but i would love to hear from and in the idea that we never really stop learning and we're always in education in some way shape or form i would i've got three people sue Ryder, yes. jim Vilay, melissa Agnew. those are people that i would love to hear from because i think especially with what's going on in the world at the moment I would love to have some insight from those people as to their perspective on it and if there is like an element of like a cyclic nature of things that we go through from generation to generation. And I think they're absolutely amazing. And for people. for listeners who aren't familiar, those those three people are all prominent teachers and coaches on the on the Brisbane scene, particularly. And uh, I yes, I agree. I would love to have them on the podcast. Great suggestions, Ben. I was lucky enough to live with Jim Vile and Sue Ryder through my whole second year of the con, and it was an education like I will never get again. So I would love to hear from those, any of those three people. I think they're all fantastic. And I think about them and apply things that they taught to me in my life every day. Fabulous. So thank you. I think they're important. Thank you, Ben. And thank you for your time today. I've loved hearing your story. I'm sure that many other people will as well. So enjoy the rest of your day, mate. Uh, and hopefully yeah, we'll get to on. we'll get to connect in person soon once all of this craziness yeah. of COVID is done. We'll go for a pint. Yay, let's do that. Yeah. I'll come for a coffee yeah, one it, day. Do it, do it, do it, <laughs> All right, mate, enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you. You too, bye.
there we have it. It was so great to chat with Ben after having heard so much about him from friends and previous guests. He's another person I've now met who's kind of living a parallel life to myself. And I can't wait to see where his career takes him, either in musical theatre or music production. I think his perspective on not letting your training or career define you as an artist is really important to remember, especially for any younger listeners out there. Just because you've trained in one thing doesn't mean you need to necessarily stick with that forever if life wants to take you on weird and interesting paths. What's the saying? Variety is the spice of life. And creativity is an ever-changing, ever-growing facet of an artist's personality. So listen to it, foster it, and diversify. You never know when creating something of your own might spark a whole new interest. The concept of diversifying and not letting your degree define you is something we're going to touch on again next week with another Brisbane performer who has really stepped out of the box of her musical theatre training for now and is living a pretty interesting life over in New York. So come back for the next episode to hear all about that. And in the meantime, go and follow us on the.pursuitpod on Instagram and rate, review and subscribe to the show wherever you like listening to your podcast just one final thought before I finish things up folks as we are reaching the end of season one we've only got a couple more episodes to go I'm starting to think about what season two of the pursuit pod might be looking like I'm hoping to reach into my contact book a little bit further and catch up with some friends and performers I've not yet gotten to feature on the show as well as pursuing some of the nominations that I've been given by my previous guests but If you are an artist of any respect or know someone who has travelled abroad in the pursuit of their creative careers, then feel free to drop me a line. I'm always keen to meet new people who are taking such big steps and pursuing their careers so bravely in the arts. And uh, if you have an interesting story to tell, maybe we could feature you on the show. So get in touch. I'd love to meet you and uh, hear a little bit more about your story. And that's about it for me, folks. So until next time. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.